Hello, and welcome to Between the Left, episode five, I think. Uh, I am with uh, my friend and a great journalist named Greg Graziosi. Hi, I'm an okay journalist, but hopefully great at some point. I mean, in my worldview, you're a great journalist, oh. but I also love you and want you to feel good about yourself. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate your encouragement. Do you want to uh, kind of explain your areas of interest in specifically what you report on, what uh, your political perspective as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a reporter for The Vindicator in Youngstown, Ohio, and I cover uh, the cities of Camel, Struthers, and Lowville, which for people who don't know anything about that, uh, Youngstown's a, a Ohio city. Um, you may have been aware of it during the election if you're not from around this area and you're listening. Um, but uh, it's old steel city. When the steel mills left, the economy fell apart here and never really recovered. There are smaller suburbs, like cities and, um, and villages and townships that surround Youngstown. I cover a few of those, Camel and Struthers being, primarily being the two. They're situated on either end of the Mahoning River, on either side of the river, and both of them essentially existed because of the steel mills that were uh, constructed along the river's uh, banks. And so just like with Youngstown, with the closing of the mills, the stories of those cities has primarily been about you know those people trying to carve out some new kind of prosperity from the ruins of the old steel mills. Uh, so it's a lot of like blue-collar reporting, it's a lot of poverty reporting, it's a lot of reporting on cities that are struggling to make things work, uh, like local governments trying to do that. So that's really my, I guess what I would say is my area of expertise. As far as my political leanings go, I mean it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, a weird thing for journalists to like, to say what your political leanings are, I, but I will say, consider myself a leftist, I would say the closest label, if I had to give myself one, would be that of you know leaning towards you know democratic socialism but i mean that's not necessarily the angle that i report from i do try to stick to the whole being objective and reporting the facts um even when there are facts that i don't particularly like i'm doing that in a story right now where you know i don't i don't like the fact that the facts are leaning towards something that i personally disagree with but that's what i'm reporting because you know that's i'm not making the news i'm just reporting it can i ask yeah, that's fine. I'll try to give a really quick brief, but essentially the city of Camel that I'm covering, th their water system is woefully outdated and they would have to spend millions and millions of dollars to get it updated to comply with new EPA standards that are going to be kicking in this year. Uh, so they basically put it to the people to decide either A, we have to raise a bunch of money and levies to take care of this water system. You have to keep in mind with Camel, there's an enormous depopulation in that region. Basically, Camel is right now, their population is half of what it was at its peak. So they have a water infrastructure for double the amount of people that they currently have living in the city that they have to maintain or else the system will falter. So without the tax base, they can't pay for maintaining and upgrading that water system. So they either need to pass expensive levies, permanent levies, that is going to raise water rates on everybody by an enormous amount in order to pay for the work that's done. Or they can sell off their system to Aqua Ohio, which is a private company yeah, that private. controls uh, a lot of the water running. In fact, Camel pretty much would be the last holdout. I thought Youngstown. Youngstown does, but Youngstown, I consider, I mean, Youngstown's a larger city, so it does its own water. In comparison to the other places that, that Aqua Ohio manages. Yeah. You know, because obviously places like Boardman, you know, Boardman has a lot of people in it, but it's not a city. It's a township. Yeah. You know, Struthers already goes, is already with that. The only other place it doesn't is Gerard, but Gerard rents their, or gets their water from Youngstown. So anyway, the fact of the matter is at the end of the day, when I'm reporting it, the reality is there's not enough people in Camel and 
Most of Kamwa's a high poverty rate. A lot of the people are aging and they're on fixed incomes. So, and my personally, I would love to see them maintain their public water there and hold on to it. That's my personal leftist opinion is the water should remain in the hands of the people. But when I'm reporting the facts, the facts are if they do that, they're going to get crushed by these levies. And most of them don't really have the money to be able yeah. to pay for And at the end of the day... All that money is gonna go go to those those wage those uh, hikes in their rates is only gonna go to improving that water system. To speak nothing of further maintaining that water system, which probably would be even more money. So as much as it pains me that that is the reality, like as a journalist, I have to report, you know, for the sake of those people, I can't make that decision for them. I need yeah. to present the facts to them and let them either, you know, decide, okay, that's a burden we want to take on ourselves, or we're gonna sell this to to Aqua Ohio because Aqua Ohio can then take care of it themselves because Aqua Ohio still has to maintain those standards so Aqua Ohio would buy it they would have to renovate that system and then the cost to maintain that system would be spread out across all of the Aqua Ohio's customers not just you know the 7,000 people that live in Camel right now yeah. so that's that's kind of what I mean when I'm yeah. like you know it's not like I'm making up anything like that and it's certainly not like I'm suppressing anything I have my opinions on things you know, just when I have to interview a Trump supporter I, I present them in the most honest way that that I can and you know I've had and I've had Trump supporters that I've interviewed before call me and tell me that they appreciated the fact that I was fair I don't paint them yeah. to be heroes or anything like that you know I don't try to New York Times Nazi story them where I try to like this is just like a normal guy you know like it's no this is what they say this is what they believe yeah. here's what they said to me now you know and that's the extent of it. I mean the problem with the the Nazi uh, New York Times story was not that they presented the person's opinions straightly as you were referring to her fairly yeah it was that they presented the person's opinion in a lens of, of, of almost romantic lens. like oh this person's just normal like us even well, though he has these horrendous opinions they treated they treated white supremacy and nazism as a feature of a subclass or yeah. a subculture rather versus yeah. a dangerous ideology which is what it is yeah and it should be called out as such whenever you're reporting it and that's the problem with a lot of these profiles is that it is treating this this you know burgeoning fascism as a subculture, and yeah. that's not how we should be treated. I think you can present a Trump supporters' opinions. But, and, but now I even... said burgeoning fascism, not Trump supporter. And I think that there's an important distinction because mm -hmm. I don't believe every Trump supporter is a burgeoning fascist. I think that they are bedfellows with them, whether wittingly or unwittingly. They're permissive. But there is something very different, I personally feel, between generic Trump supporter and an actual Nazi who yeah, says no, they're a Nazi. No, I definitely yeah. agree. And, and I think whether we want to discuss uh, the Trump supporter versus the imagined blue-collar uh, worker. Which probably vote. we don't because that's yeah. been talked to death. Yeah, and that's not really the point. I think you can you can take the grievances of a Trump supporter and you can, like, actualize those grievances in a, in a historical context that makes sense without being necessarily inherently sympathetic or antagonistic without also platforming the most, like, egregious ideas that they have or the most fascist-friendly, quote-unquote. Yeah. But the kind of idea of uh, having Greg on here is I am also uh, technically a journalist, although I will say that Greg is a much more... You're, you're a more authentic journalist, I guess. Like, I have strayed far from the idea of objectivity. I don't really pretend, make any pretense well, of it. I don't believe... I, here's the thing. I think, and, and this is a... This comes from renowned NYU journalism professor... Oh, yeah. Uh, Jay Rosen, that's it. Jay Rosen, um, but but you know, I think that the uh, the idea of objectivity is kind of silly because yeah. you can't. Nobody is objective, yeah. And objectivity is ruined. You know, 
certainly in print by just even the type of words we choose. And you cannot be objective with video at all. The editing process of video alone, every scene you select, every cut you yeah. make, every angle you shoot obvious. at is, is an expression of intent with yeah. the way that you want to present that information. So there's no presenting information in an objective way, period, across the board. So at, at its core right there, objective reporting, and I'm using scare quotes here, is a, a faulty idea to try to hold people to. And oftentimes when people call out reporters and say, oh, you're not being objective, what they yeah. really mean is, oh, you aren't reporting what I want to hear. Yes. I think what's more important within journalism is being fair in your reporting. Yeah. I can be fair when I present a Trump supporter. I can be fair when I discuss the water situation in Camel by showing both sides of a story and reporting the facts. I think that the entanglement that people get into with objectivity is they they try to strike this balance. You can be fair and have two sides that do not look like they have equal claim to the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, being fair, you know, in a story about whether or not the sky is blue is saying, you know, scientist A says the sky is blue, scientist B says the sky is red. However, Scientist B is wrong and nobody thinks, nobody agrees with him. There's no consensus in agreement with him. That's fair reporting because it's true. Objective reporting is just saying scientist A says the sky is blue, scientist B says the sky is red, and leaving it there. And that is not what I think is good journalism. But that has too long been what some journalistic outlets do. Yeah, and, and even within liberal spheres, there is a definite uh, push to remove the idea of objectivity even as like a pretense. Like I think Vox does this to a degree. It's It's like... Okay, we're not being objective, but we're trying to be fair. However, what I will say is that my kind of feeling on the fair versus objective dialogue is it does present another problem of not fully engaging with a, a bigger critique that I would have that all of, I mean, all, this is almost absurd, but all of existence within a society is set within certain, like, ideological realms. Uh, and I think fairness doctrine in journalism does this to a degree, to pretend that when you talk to an economist, most likely that economist is going to be of the Chicago school. Is going to be, um, even if they're left or right, they're going to be of a certain very, very predominant uh, school of thought in economics. And that's just the reality of life in America. And I think even while being fair, you can not confront that notion or not, not try to like step outside of the ideological bounds because then you're being radical or then you're being not fair or unfair or objective or not objective, but you're, you're having a conversation outside of the, the conceived limits. So what I'm kind of saying is that I do attempt to tailor stories I report along a certain ideological line not that i'm trying to like force every single idea to fit within that but i try to always bring my leftist because i'm i'm often reporting business economics i'm often doing more analytical pieces less like here are the pure facts of the matter i often try to consider my own ideology when i'm pulling in concepts from outside so if i'm doing a story on maybe that struthers water uh situation i would say yes in this choice this binary choice makes sense to go private but i would try to bring in concepts from the larger history of the matter that you know privatization has been a result of historical starvation of public funds 
it is part of uh, neoliberalism, whatever. I, that might not get through the editor, but that is like kind of the general thrust of my attack yeah. because I think it's important that journalism is, is challenged by an actual ideology that is juxtaposed to the predominant um, journalist ideology, which is falls within the center often, even even with people who are not pretending to be quote-unquote objective. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the that's... That's that's a good perspective to to have, and I, I agree with that for the most part. Because you know, even in my own reporting, on those situations, I do try to present. You know, like with the Camel Water situation, another reporter may have reported that there's nothing wrong with them selling, that that's the obvious choice to make. Whereas, you know, I made sure that I did include the fact that you know, if they give this up, they are giving up control of their water. They give up control of you know, being able to hold the people that make decisions on their water accountable because now they can't vote them out. For example. Because it's not a water official who was put in place there by the mayor or the city council. Uh, so I do try to include that. I think the, a lot of the issue, and particularly in the newspapers, which is where I work, um, and I assume that with, you know, uh, this would be the same with TV. Really, the only place you don't have to worry this about this as much is with online publications. But you know, there are practical implications too to that. Not every story can be, a, you know, a seven thousand word story on that that gives you an intense historical background. Yeah. You know, and and all of these you know economic footnotes on every single thing that happens. Sometimes you need to put out a 15-inch story so the people will know what happened at the Camel Town Hall last night. And that's kind of the problem that you get into is because of limited space, limited time, limited attention, you you can't always include a lot of that context, and you kind of have to rely on the fact that the readers, people who are reading what you're writing, hopefully have some amount of either A, education, or B, initiative to, if they want to understand more, to read it. Because at yeah. the end of the day, you know, all of us who have come to the left, whether it be recent or if we've been, you know, on the left uh, for a long time, if we figure that out somehow, you know. And so it's not out of the realm for other people to figure out. So, but I mean, I, I do think, though, that there is, that you are right. Like, I think journalists in particular need to be a little bit more robust about the sources that they use when they're reporting these stories because it's, you know, the traditional way is like, okay, well, what's the conservative idea and what's the, the liberal idea? But anymore, the liberal idea might as well be the conservative idea. And the conservative idea is, you know, wacky town crazy pants. So you got to, you know, I, I think it's more important that we start, or I think it, it is, is important that we start looking to yeah. leftists for those things. I mean, you look at the, you know, opinion pages at any major paper, there's no fucking leftist on any of them. You know, it's all... Hardline David centrists, Brooks. yeah, or conservatives. Complete psychopaths. Um, yeah, and uh, I definitely think that needs to happen. You look at business reporters, too. I mean, you're probably one of the few business reporters that has that perspective. Most business reporters are ideologically hardcore pro-capitalist. Yeah. You know, I, I know that at least in my you know experience, that's been the case. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. You had questions. No, I, well, I think, like, in general, what I was kind of getting at when I said, and I said it, Poorly, that I've given up on the idea of objectivity is not so much that I have actually given up on the idea of objectivity or, or that I even think that's a meaningful idea at all. Is it's more that I I have started to I've started to identify myself, and this is nothing against journalism as much as it I've started to identify as a leftist first and a journalist second, mm -hmm. and that means that I want to use journalism as a sort of political expression as a sort of like tool in my toolkit for leftism and that's why i've like gone away from journalism 
and I've started applying to PhDs, I will still try to be a journalist in the sense that I will use journalistic techniques to continue writing, and I will use it to inform activism as well, because I think there's a very, a very certain, like, on-the-ground perspective that comes inherent to journalism that is very beneficial to the type of activism that I might want to do. But I've strayed away from the, the idea of journalism increasingly. And I guess my question for you is how you, do you consider yourself a journalist first and a leftist second, I guess? Yeah, I would. Because at the end of the day, leftism is an ideology and ideologies can rot like anything else. Um, what I don't see, I mean, and journalism certainly has its own fair share of rottenness to it, but I think the core concept and idea of journalism in being that it is meant to be a public good. Uh, it is meant to be an arm of the, or the. It's essentially just you know a, a representative of the public, keeping track of what's happening in the halls of power and then reporting back to them. Right. That's all. That's all our job really is supposed to be at the end of the day. It's grown into this big you know idiotic infotainment business. But at the at the end of the day, all journalism really is supposed to be is there's a few of us who go, okay, hey, everybody else, we know you've got to work. You know, you got to go build bridges. you got to be a doctor. you got to, you know, be an esthetician. you got to teach school. You don't have time to worry about all this shit. We'll go and we'll worry about all this shit for you and we'll come back and tell you what happens. That's what journalism is. And so that, I believe, is a service that will always be necessary no matter what the fuck is going on in this country. Um, while politically I'm a leftist, I previously was a liberal and previous to that a conservative. So I've been wrong before, mm -hmm. and so I, while I absolutely consider myself a leftist now, I am always very cautious about selling out to any ideology. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to ever be conflicted if I do need to report on a leftist who's doing something wrong. I don't want there to be a conflict between, okay, how do I handle this? It's like, if I have to, you know, if I have to go after a leftist, I'm going to go after them as hard as I would go after some conservative buffoon. Yeah. And I feel like if I don't make those lines very clear in my head as to where my allegiances stand, then it, it makes it very easy to become, you know, effective. Because at the end of the day, what's the goal, right? Is The goal is eventually for leftist ideology to take power and take root. And then when that happens, hopefully soon, but when that does happen, my job now becomes holding that government accountable. So if that government is the government I want to be there and that I like, I still need to do my job. I still need to take them accountable. And so I, I think I would always consider like my job's not going to change if a Bernie Sanders gets in. My, you know, if I, you know, if, we, if the American Corbin shows up and and takes over, cool. But my job doesn't change. My job is still holding that person accountable, regardless of my feelings for them. Yeah, and I guess that's uh, more so why I would not necessarily call myself an activist oriented person but a analytical academic type with journalist roots and influences and in what i want to do but that being said i absolutely see i guess we all have to dance in certain ideological spheres when we're deciding on like what exactly we want our goal or our part to play within society is and it's not that i disagree with you that that is what journalism should be and it's something i'm very interested in in fact i think that i define myself as an anarcho-marxist because i am squarely part of my ideology is opposition to power in opposition to centralization and and the disconnect from the the man on the street union worker whatever but it is regardless of what happens i'm always going to be i imagine at this point based on that assumption a 
leftist because like a you know a social democratic government or a um I mean, let's say a Stalinist government, a tanky government. There's a very, very clear line of critique from that anarcho-Marxist. And I guess the kind of benefit of having that is a sort of utopian ideology uh, in anarcho-Marxism. But in a way, I think it is almost a sort of career ideology in the way journalism is, or utopian ideology in the way journalism is in the ideal. But I guess to me, both are is both are very much utopian because the reality of journalism right now, and part of the reason I'm backing away from it, is that so much of journalism serves power, and so many of the institutions of corporate journalism serve power. Maybe what I'm actually talking about becoming, or what I would like to become, is a non-corporate journalist, but that's not really possible in the current environment. No, I would disagree. I think that's definitely possible. There's plenty of grant-run journalism outfits. There's plenty of uh, reader-funded journalism outfits. They're not as prevalent, obviously, as yeah. big corporate-driven ones, but they're certainly popping up. And it, it's actually kind of a burgeoning trend right now is people looking for those outlets. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know. I, I've always been somebody who I feel like... It's one of the same reasons why I'm so torn, because I've always wanted to be a foreign reporter. Um, but there's a part of me that wants to stay here because there's such a fight here right now. Yeah. And that's the same way I feel with journalism as an industry is that... I gain nothing by retreating out of it. Like, if I think there needs to be a change in journalism, then I need to be the person that does that. In my small part that I can play working at a local newspaper, and then hopefully down the road I'll, you know, move out of where I'm at now and into a little bit more prominent publications. But even if I don't, you know, I, that the only way that we change anything is by being a part of that change. And I don't think backing away from it, you know, I think, for me at least, I want to drive head on into it and go... Because now, because I've got the ear of other journalists around me, you know, yeah. and I can go on my rants to editors and my rants to other journalists and be a representative of that community. Because it's, it's very easy to stand on the outside of journalism and talk all about what's wrong with it. A million people do that, a million podcasts, that's the concept that they, you know, that they have, is talking about what's wrong with the media. Which is fine, the media should be critiqued like anything else. But I think it's a lot harder, but I think a lot more impactful to try to change it from, from within and be like, yeah, you're right. I'm a journalist and there's a lot of shitty things and shitty ways that, that current journalism, you know, is, is it manufactures consent, you know, to quote the, yeah. the, you know, the title of the book, but just feel like if I'm going to change that, I need to be a part of the inside of actually trying to report differently and do that. Yeah. What, what I should clarify is I didn't mean that it's not possible for anyone to do that, to work outside of like corporate journalism yeah. or boot looking journalism. Um, and I, I, I mean that I don't know if it's possible for me to do that. I don't oh, know I if I'm that. willing to, I don't know if I want to engage with the sort of less meaningful or pleasurable parts of journalism for long enough to try to do that. I guess it's just not really the fight I want to take on. But that being said, I absolutely agree that journalism is a very powerful thing. And I think even like New York Times and these media outlets that I have huge problems with have some excellent journalism because they hire excellent people who do speak truth to power in the yeah. way that actually means something. Yeah, even as, as, ma as many issues as I do with the New York Times, I still you know respect the majority of their reporters. I, you know, I can give a shit about the editorial page. But... Yeah. You know, the reporters, I think, are pretty good. I think so, they cozy up a little bit too much to... Yeah, I think uh, the Washington reporters can be like... Well, the Washington reporters, I think, cozy up a little bit too much to the Washingtonites. And I think, at the times, they cozy up a little bit too much to uh, to um, security, like uh, intelligence community yeah. individuals. 
Um, but I mean, overall, though, you know, I, I, I think that they have top-notch reporters, and that's yeah. why they do what they do. It, it's less. It's to me, it's less the New York Times, and yeah, more the reporters, because the New York Times, you can you can see their editorial line by how they position their stories, and that is very much or like a Trump investigation that might be an excellent piece of investigative journalism, but is is pouring all of the energy of the New York Times into like the Russia investigation, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's that's what I have the problem with, which is the priorities of the paper versus the integrity or the quality of the majority of its journalists. Whereas like the intercept is is, you know, uh far more interested in just being antagonistic with its yeah. uh, editorial line. And, and the Intercept, as much, and I love the Intercept, but the Intercept is also a, a bit of a niche publication, too. Yeah, well, you know, it, it serves in, you know, very much the intelligence community and in, is antagonistic of both parties, which I love, and I, you know, that's why I love and respect the Intercept forever, is because of that. Um, although it is, although I should mention, you know, its new name is the Putincept, as we all know. I don't know if you've seen on, on Twitter the last couple of days. They just, Jer, um, James Risen wrote the piece about the, uh, the NSA and CIA, you know, backing away and, uh, from, from information that might, you know, that might condemn Trump and the NSA buying back some stolen things that these shadow broker guys, some stole, stolen, like, um, information collection tools that, that were, that the shadow broker guys took from them like a year or two ago. Uh, but anyway, after when that story came out, a lot of like the the hashtag resistance crowd. Came, I I didn't realize I knew that people were pissed at the Intercept, but I didn't realize to the conspiratorial like Eric Garland esque ends oh, that people God. were upset with the Intercept. Like it is it's full blown like McCarthyist. They are convinced Greenwald is a shill. You know that Scahill is a shill. You know. It's uh, it's really disheartening to see because the Intercept does just as much shitting on, on conservatives yeah. and, and the and the Republicans as they do on the Democrats. You can't touch the Democrats, yeah. or else how dare you? You know how dare you not be in, in in solidarity with us during this fight? Because Trump apparently is the most important thing in the world to get rid of, not the systems that allowed Trump to exist in the first place, yeah. which in part is Democratic incompetence. Yeah. You know. Democratic incompetence allowed Trump to exist just as much as Republican deviousness and deception. Yeah, which, so. I mean, if we want to talk about manufactured consent, we could talk about the sort of weird dance that media did in the 2016 election of, A, a good number of people were just, like, vouching for Clinton in all of her, her potential failures and otherwise, and, and kind of holding the line of, oh, things are going to be okay, while at the, at the same time criticizing her in a very like narrow stupid way it was an amazing instance of like the way that media can seem to be lining up along both sides and like coming at people from both sides well still like you have the spectrum and then you have these two narrow slices of the spectrum that they're actually interested in in discussing and that in of itself is a you know it set up very nicely the problem a it made the democrats blind to their own shortcomings to it well the actual like on the ground democrats blind to their shortcomings while also attacking clinton from frankly often a very sexist position and, and probably like increasing those shortcomings yeah it, it was if anything it was just it was a cell phone yeah no i mean it was it was poorly handled and i'd like to say a lot of people learned from that but i don't think they have no they have not 
you know, and I don't have the answers either. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the right way to cover Trump. I really don't. I know the right way probably isn't hanging on his every word and reporting that constantly. I don't know the right way to report. I mean, I know. I think I do know. Oh, I know a better way of reporting on Democrats, which is not not flocking to whatever pretty boy they bring out. To, to be the next savior. It's really to not fall for this whole idea of the savior trap the Democrats seem to have. You know, first it was Cory Booker, and now, and then, you know, we had Joe Kennedy, and they just trotted out in front of us during the State of the Union. You know, for a second there, it was Kamala Harris, who I've warmed up to a lot more since she's come out in support for... I still don't like her, you know, her history necessarily, but she's come out in support of some better policies, so I'm definitely going to give her props for that. But... You know, they have this this weird... They're looking for their deliverer. And it seems like rather than just yeah. trying to find the platform that, but, they can, yeah. that they can deliver to the people that, that will bring them some hope and inspiration again. But instead they just want... They need their next Obama is essentially what the Democrats are trying to do. Yeah. That's the, like, truly... We talk about these, uh, these lanyard types. It's so discouraging that so many of the excellent journalists in our world are just elsewhere like they're maybe working for the new york times but are they covering washington eh, probably not yeah they're but probably... i mean i think a lot of that's by design though it's because i think a lot of i think there's a type of person that wants to get into the horse race and i think yeah. a lot of journalists that value journalism because i you know i'm not necessarily going to say that i'm this great journalist that you know is should be counted amongst the people you're talking about but I know for me, the idea of working in Washington is is disgusting to me. Yeah. I want nothing to do with the horse race. I do not want to be... I don't even want to live there, let alone report in Washington. But And I feel like the, the, the reporters who go and intentionally get involved in that world are the people that want to be involved in that world. There's a glamour associated with it, and I think they want to get... They... they allow themselves to get swept up in that glamour. I don't think people... The only reporters that should be allowed to go to Washington to report are people like me who will loathe every minute of it and yeah. are forced to go there. Which is... Which that is, should be it. You the know? same problem with capitalism is it's self-reconfirming. It's self-confirming that yes. the capitalists tend to be the same type of people that reinforce capitalism yeah. and are giant dicks. Yeah. Like, you have your intercept people who I assume do go there and hate every second of it, but... You can look at, too. I mean, so this is going to be very... This is going to be very, like hashtag young white male even though i'm not that young anymore but you know i think of the campaign trail books from hunter thompson and matt taibbi uh, those are guys who loathed every moment of the, the people that yeah. they had to spend their time around I, but it was some of the better reporting that was out there i mean thompson saw the, the writing on the wall if you read fear and loathing on the campaign trail taibbi called the rise of the you know the trumpsters from early on now granted he backed off on it a little bit because he even ended up buying into the media uh, by the end of that campaign if, if you read any of his earlier dispatches uh, you know you can clearly see that he kind of was understanding of oh this there's something here guys we should be paying attention to this and those two of course are not the only two examples of that but you know the 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 people you know your politicos and i'm not saying that necessarily the name of the, the i'm not referencing the, the publication i'm just in a general term but those types that really dig yeah. that whole type of reporting they just, you know, they, they, they run around and they affirm the stories with each other. So they build up these narratives that maybe aren't necessarily reflective of the rest of the country. It's just they have their own... It's all... It's palace entry. Yeah, that is... I guess I can't blame people for existing within a certain ideological sphere and, and kind of, like, having their priorities set by that ideological sphere. But, like, just on the sheer merits, you should, as a journalist, as a default, be super skeptical of power. And they're just not. Just so many of them are not. They are shamelessly, openly ready to be in awe of it. 
or be like willing to just like back one source of power and loathe the other. Yeah. And it's, and I, I understand because it is hard because it's politicians are by nature of who they are generally charismatic and yeah. likable. It's easy to hate a lot of people when you meet them only through the lens of a television screen or a written article. But when you're dealing with these people face to face and up front, it's very easy to sympathize with people. Yeah. You know, I do this all the time with people that I cover. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's hard to, especially when access is such a big part of their jobs, which access journalism is a problem in and of itself, but it's, it, it, it's hard, but to, to like shit on these people or take them down when necessary, but it's still part of the job. You yeah. know, if you're not willing to do that job, then don't fucking do it. You know, don't, yeah. don't take the job. I guess what is so tragic about that reconfirming kind of funnel is that those are the places we need the most like excellent kind of anti-authority journalists because i do believe that those those types of that type of horse race journalism that type of uh, lanyard reporters have greatly contributed to the sort of illiteracy americans have about power and the sort of just like slack-jawed confusion they have at a critique based on okay different power relationships here like yeah the racist white trump voter is an asshole but let's say he's you know he's poor or he's lower middle class, downwardly mobile. That's not an excuse. But then you have the white liberal who says all the right things about like privilege and stuff, but is rich. That is an inherent power relationship that everyone should be aware of. And in the default media that the sort that cover Washington will never like juxtapose those two people in any sort of power relationship. You know what I mean? Like they'll never make clear about a power relationship because that's I don't know if that's like not objective or not fair, but like that is the core of journalism to me is is making explicit what type of power relationship we're talking about. But just so much of journalism in like 2016 was like fucking yeah, as we talked about, blaming the voters instead of the democratic machine. Yeah, or you know, making you know, or, or just even blaming the saying that Trump won the poor vote when really he won the middle, the lower middle class vote. He won the suburbanites vote. Yeah, you know, because the fact of the matter is as. Sanders said the poor don't vote and it's true if you look yeah, at that yeah. turnout if you look at the turnout here even here in Mahoney County you know the turnout was way lower that came out for both Hillary and for uh for Trump yeah. was uh, this year compared to 20 uh compared to 2012 and uh and 2008 so it's looking at, at those things I think are important like you said developing those power relationships and also you know not getting the narrative wrong either not looking at it and going like oh it was it's it's poor hilljacks and methed out hillbillies yeah. that elected trump like no it's not it's the people that serve on your school board yeah. it's they they are so inherently i i mean truly inherently classist a lot of those journalists yeah. even though they aren't like of the i mean they're kind of class traders of a sort because they're not like rich people well that's the problem is that journalism used to be a rich thing that you could get into yeah i mean new york times a lot and granted you need it to live in new york i suppose but new york times reporters start out at nine $95,000 a year. And journalism used to be a lucrative career. It used to be a career associated with a lot of gifts. He would send shit to the newspapers all the time. It was the lowest rung where you could where you could throw your weight around like an elite would. Yeah. Would be getting into the media. And that obviously doesn't exist nowadays. Nowadays we're poor as shit. I make, the, I make less money than... Like, I'm jealous of my teacher roommates' salaries. That's how bad it is. I wish I was getting paid a teacher's yeah, salary. Yeah, no, I make... We make shit. But I, you know what, though, is I think that's going to be a good thing. I think we're already starting to see that shift, though, with journalism. is because now that journalism is finally, you know, this is one of the good things I think has come out of the internet destroying journalism, has shaken us yeah. from the seat of the elite 
and sent us crashing back down to the ground. Now that all of us are wallowing in poverty, we're angry. We're angry, but we're also starting to understand the plight yeah. of the poor and reacting in that way. I mean, you can look at all of these digital publications now that are unionizing. Yeah. You know, my paper is a union paper. I'm part of a I'm part of a guild. And I pay my dues, you know, just like anybody else. But you see Vox and Vice and yeah. all these other places that are unionizing now, which is awesome. And but what I, and I hope that that trend continues where it's not just an issue of unionization. But I hope now they start to be able. Like I hope that there are reporters that don't have to come from those roots to start paying attention to those issues. You know, Sarah Jones, who writes for the New Republic. I really like Sarah Jones a yeah, lot. Sarah Jones, good. Sarah Jones came out of out of rural Appalachia. Yeah. You know, that's her that's her background. She does great poverty reporting. Yeah. But you know, when I think it was Reuters, I think it was Reuters when Reuters hired a, a Rust Belt a journalist to cover the Rust Belt. Yeah. I think they brought over a British guy. Now, granted, the guy's a great reporter, and I can't shit on him being a reporter or for being British, but you would just think that you could definitely you could find a reporter who was more familiar with our area and our problems rather than a parachuter who you're gonna drop into the to the Rust Belt and say, Okay, figure this out. Yeah, and then they always come into the Rust Belt with this like wide eyed, like, oh everything's such shit and all these and then they report like that. Like yeah, it's I saw the hordes of poor and disaffected yeah we're the new heart of darkness like you know what i mean like they get here looking for livingston and it's miserable to try to to read a lot of that stuff it does it crazy and and what's so frustrating is they think that they're doing some kind of service to us because oh we're telling the story of how terrible this is yeah but it is not because it's not again it's not addressing any sort of power relationship it's not addressing a root cause it's just it is essentially like exploitation of misery. Yeah. No, they think, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, dem- it's, you know, ruin porn and then the story of the, the people America forgot. And that's what all these, these pieces are. Which, I mean, so. we've internationalized most of our industries, but this is a, the flip because normally we used to go across the sea to do that. Now we yeah. can just come to the Midwest or. Yeah, just come to the Midwest and come look at our shit. Our new industry of ruin porn yeah but i mean really the midwest and appalachia are the th- i mean we are the third world of the united states and the inner cities you could say as yeah, well the inner cities. Ur- urban poverty is kind of similar anywhere you go yeah. in the world you know obviously the magnitude changes a lot but once you've been in a poor area of a city for the most part that's what it looks like anytime you're in a poor area of a city but you know the the, the rust belt and appalachia are very unique in yeah just, the reasons why they are the way they there's are a, there's a skeleton nature of it that that permeates the entire area in a way yeah. that uh gentrified, gentrified cities are very like you know they're pushed off to the side it's not it's not this like kind of miasma of, of distress which is i mean both are in their own way a problem it's the same way of like a lot of the third world countries or i should say developing countries developing countries yeah they have that like massive wealth inequality and uh a lot of like displaced people with like beautiful city centers that's uh, very much of what american cities have mm-hmm. and then on the outskirts of that you have similar well i mean yeah rust belt in even its own way is, is different than developing countries because we have like the we have the post-development we have the yeah bombed out cities with no factories left more like a like a world war ii town that's been left that just yeah that just never recovered yeah 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 and and i was gonna go into just the tweets section as i call it the um the tweets of america okay also it's super weird that like the left has like partially organized on twitter which is inherently like highly hierarchical and like bare bones sort of like capitalist mentality social site it's real weird your voice is numerically valued. 
Oh yeah, no. I mean, I, I think it's. I, I think the the where that kind of I think where that gets evened out in the wash though is that while the your voice is numerically valued, access you know you have the you have the chance to uh, become well known yeah. on there and to have those discussions and to reach out to people individually and what happens like otherwise like when every voice is equal we're just all shouting at the same volume into a giant room yeah well it's more that it's it's a it's a like ecosystem that's in under the control of the company and is sure. But you're right. Like I'm not. I'm not saying that it, there's any like real alternative. Obviously, if it discourages direct action and action on the street, serious problem there. But I well, I, I think that's the bigger issue is that there's a large portion of the left that exists almost exclusively online. Yeah, which is a real problem. Yeah, I think that was you know love them or hate them. Uh, I think I was listening to actually an episode of Harmontown and Josh Androsky from DSA LA. Um, was on there talking about just how uh, after he got into some trouble because him and a couple of the Chapo guys did that joke with the Cosby star, oh, um, yeah. he pulled away a lot from online life and had just really kind of refocused on doing in real life organizing. Yeah, which is the yeah. There's there's no replacement and, for it. Well, yeah, and I mean at the end of the day, I think it's because uh, you know online is very toxic and it, particularly if you are anybody of note because if you're anybody of note, there will be a contingent of people waiting with you know their claws out for the moment you slip up particularly on twitter twitter is really bad for that but they're waiting for you to slip up so they can tear you apart and get rid of you yeah even even on like the left there's a definite contingent of that um, yeah so, which i don't even know if it's it's necessarily done in bad faith all the time to a degree it is but like either way it's it's unnecessarily scrutinizing if every action you take is under that incredible scrutiny when your actions are only online you're just gonna be i mean you're gonna be paralyzed in the exact norm yeah but i, I think you know what he's he he kind of advised everybody to just you know yeah get but, offline well and i think that that's a good i, I think it's good because and that's what i was advised you know i was talking to some friends of mine from out of town about protests and they were talking about how you know they don't sometimes like to go to protests because they don't know how to weigh the safety versus effect and i was like listen i was like i think protests are good and you should go to them it's like but i think more importantly than going to protests you should go to work you should organize yeah you should you should organizing i think does a lot more. the dsa's like the dsa's uh break light and uh uh, stuff that they've done in a few different chapters like that's a great organizing uh event and that's i think in a lot of ways is probably going to go a lot further or a lot farther in furthering the leftist cause than marching yeah, in, and, in a lot of ways. Because unless you're gonna break shit, marching yeah. doesn't do a whole lot. Yeah, and, and break all breaking shit does is it makes is it, it makes the city react to you because now you're forcing them to spend money on fixing the stuff that, they, that you break. Yeah, or I mean, if so. you disrupt capitalism in a real sure. way, like if shutting you down an airport, business, for yeah, that's that's meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just being, like, organized by the police into, like, a safe route and to, like, y- walk a circle around is yeah. not... that you show, Showing that a bunch of you care about a certain thing doesn't, I think, do a ton. You, if, know, you either yeah. need to disrupt or you need to destroy. Not in any... I'm not, you know, saying burn cities down, but, you know... If you're a po- if you're in opposition to a city that you think is ignoring the needs of their people and you force them to spend some money, they will pay attention to you because yeah. you have just now fucked with their budget. But there's so. also a chance that they will delegitimize you in the majority's view. That's true, but I mean, you know, I think I think direct I, like making certain people afraid is a very good strategy. Like making certain people afraid to function. Like yeah. ICE, for example, if you go right. out there. And you, you, like, say you find a person that ICE is going to arrest and 
you somehow just get there before they get there and you block them and you yell yeah. at them and you scream at them and yeah. you shame them. I'm not telling anybody to throw a trash can through Ice's window. I'm not telling you not to either. But <laughs> I, you know what I mean? But I do agree. I think that it's far more effective to, you know, shut down an airport or block off a street, you know, just the highway blockings are very controversial. I'm still wishy-washy on highway blockings just because you do at that point shut down emergency services. Yeah. And like some of you, you know, airports, I think are, yeah. I think airports are fine because at the end of the day, you're not shutting down runways. You're just grinding everything to a halt and you're, you're stopping and hurting commerce, which I think is good. Shutting down ports, same way. Yeah. I think shutting down ports would be, is, is a good way to do it. So if you're going to organize in a March like fashion, I would say do that stuff. Shopping know, malls. Shopping, whatever. Yeah. Just disrupting the flow of commerce and making people upset is good. Yeah. But otherwise I think organizing and organizing in a way that's like proactive and that provides services for people that services like in in the case of the taillights that yeah. are a response to a problem with you know police encounters with you know young uh, people of color or serving a particular need that is failed by capitalism or yeah. by whatever it is that you're protesting against i think those are good not to completely ape and I will say I've been I've been banging this drum before I heard it on Struggle Session, the recent interview with the uh, L.A. Uh, DSA activist who is from. Oh yeah, 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 I listened to that episode. It was a good episode. Yeah, it was very good. Like I very much agree with what he was saying about making your presence explicitly known. And I've been saying this like we need to almost function like a church. I was gonna say this is very explicit presence. Yeah, you know my my like my background is very much been in Christianity. I was I was yeah. on track for a long time to be a mission. And I still consider myself a Christian, though I'm not a part of any like church bodies or anything like that. I, I just I have my own theological beliefs essentially. But I will say though that a lot of the same outreach tactics that you know the church has tried to use and that were you know successful for a long time. I do think would actually translate well because it is focused on service, right? Yeah. Thing is, is it's it's a lot easier to sell a political ideology with tangible things than it yeah. is necessarily sell a religion because yeah. that's asking a lot for some of you to believe in a supernatural being. It's asking a lot less to say, "Hey, you're looking for political change." You know, here we just provided you with a tangible yeah, example of the kind of things that we would like to see happen more often. That's something people can buy into. I mean, like, I, I feel like grassroots became such a meme that it, like, kind of lost meaning. And, and there is obviously great importance to grassroots activism. It's the most important. And grassroots organizing politically. But I think sometimes an element of that is left out that is doing things for people. Just providing services. Yeah. And it's... Because so many people don't see like democrats never do that they never there's never like here is a fucking i'm gonna yeah fix your brake light every month or something or i'm gonna go clean your sidewalk every month i'm a democrat hey <laughs> like can yeah. you imagine hillary clinton going i am shoveling your sidewalk yeah it's also a great way to like and learn how to live outside of capitalism is, is oh yeah in an anti-capitalist way yeah absolutely and that's i think a good thing because that's that's the real fight I, I guess ideologically is trying to help people visualize a different way than what we have now. And yeah. it's hard for a lot of people. You know, Mark Fisher wrote a lot, obviously a lot about that, about, you know, peering past, you know, the end of capitalism and yeah, how, how hard that is to, to visualize. But I think that, like like you mentioned, though, doing these sorts of activities, and to be, and like just to be perfectly clear, it's very easy for us to sit here and talk about that. Yeah, and, like, yeah. the organizers that are on the ground doing it, though, are to be commended because that's hard fucking work. You know, I've put together service projects before back in my, you know, days, you know, working in youth groups and stuff like that and trying to get people together for a work day 
you know, for anything, let alone being like, hey, let's go, you know, for a political ideology that a lot of people are yeah. going to hate us and misunderstand us for. It's tough to get people to commit to that. It's very tough and, and tough to keep them involved in it. So, you know, it's very easy to say that, but at the end of the day, the reality is it will take, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of dedication for people that are involved in things like the DSA or unions in general to try to put that stuff together. Cause yeah. most, cause, and that's, that, again, though, is a result of the function of our society, you know, grinding us to the bone and making us not want to actually, not giving us the time or the energy to go and do those kinds of things. I guess that, calling back to our earlier conversation, is I think that it is in a sense different being a leftist or how I envision being a leftist than being like a liberal per se or like a democrat um because like that is attaching yourself to a very specific party infrastructure it's attaching yourself to a very specific method of doing things and I, I kind of guess the core of my leftism is yeah on one hand anti-authority anti-power but it's also anti-capitalism and anti-capitalism in and of itself is just is is a if not a, it's not necessarily a political program, but a, a, a prospect for the future, a, like a path that we can get down. And like to me, that's like saying I'm anti-feudalism at this point. Like obviously, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. And and so it's like there's so much that can be contained within that that isn't just like oh I support the DSA or whatever. But yeah, I, real quick, I wanna um, there's two things. First off, I wanna bring up the Michael Ian Black tweet because I think your reaction to it will be enjoyable. Um, he said, assuming everybody mad at Hillary for not firing that guy when she heard about his allegations of sexual harassment will be demanding John Kelly's resignation now. Uh, assumedly, that is a shot at the left. Uh, I, yeah, I don't really know who that's aimed at, because first of all, yeah, John Kelly resigned. Like, yes. But also... She gets shot into the sea. Yeah, go away forever, please. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm not sure who that's aimed at. I mean, that might maybe that's aimed at Republicans, because I mean, that's the thing is that Twitter conservatives, who is probably who he's responding to, like probably came out in force, and because you know they will they will co-opt anything. Yeah. That you know, so if they have the chance to call someone misogynistic or racist or yeah. whatever, they are going to do that. That's their playbook. Is they try to use stuff against us to delegitimize it. And so yeah. that's, you know, I think that's probably who he's referring to more than leftists. He's probably responding to those people saying, well, you guys were all about saying Hillary Clinton should step down for defending her weird religious uncle guy that she hired, you know, because that was his job was sending chain emails every day to Hillary, right? Yeah. His, her faith advisor. Like, that's not a fucking job. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> her court wizard. <laughs> but the you know I think uh, as far as uh, as far as the John Kelly thing goes, like I think that's who he's talking to, and that is, See, is, is those Republicans. I, I, yeah, I, I guess that that's that's very possible, and I, in, like either way, it's it, it's not really in a very effective talking point. No, it's it, you know it's very stupid. Like, and it's, oh, well, also calling out hypocrisy is like the lamest, uh, most futile and impotent way of engaging in any kind of political. Discussion. I mean, if this was how it was prior to 2016, but after 2016, yeah, it is so it is worse. magnitudes yeah. more worthless to bring up hypocrisy. Yes, of course they're it, it, they're giant hypocrites. Of, of you know that's not fucking shocking. You, the fact that Donald Trump exists leading a party that supposedly valued family values and fiscal conservatism, and then they elected Donald Trump. You know, like come on. So uh, hypocrisy has has zero value to call out like yeah. nobody fucking cares well i think hypocrisy does a value on your own side or at least yes like within well, the realm of the broad house which cleaning is, why is good hillary out is 
useful. I'm right. Glad. House cleaning is good. Yeah. But if if my if what I am if, my, if what my opinion of this tweet is is he's trying to call out Twitter conservatives. Yeah. That I feel like is completely worthless and a well, waste of time. I, I I got the sense that it was I was unsure admittedly, but I kind of got the sense that it was shot at the left because that's what I see a lot from Michael Ian Brown or Michael Ian Black. Wow. Wrong color. Wrong color. Yeah. That was Michael Ian White. Um, yeah. he so it wasn't racist till the last one. <laughs> But he so often is these like just like wide-eyed nonsense opinions about like Bernie being like, oh, actually, Bernie fans, uh, you say that you don't like racism, but Bernie is uh, he criticizes Israel, so he hates he's a self-hating Jew. That's sort of like just inconceivable ignorance and coming from like a seemingly a place of uh, sincerity. And in a new, it would be like a, a extreme step forward to think that oh, the left people who are calling out Hillary Clinton would not also hate John Kelly. Yeah, that's I guess why. Maybe I, I'm that's why I think I, why I'm thinking he's not going after the left because why? Why would anybody in the left not want John Kelly to resign? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I guess I just like I never. Maybe I'm underestimating liberal types. In any case, the more important one I wanted to bring up, and this isn't a specific tweet, but what have you? What is your take on um, Glenn Greenwald recently with the Russia stuff? I mean, I think so. Here's my thing: as far as the Russia investigation goes, I honestly have not poured that much time into it. I yeah, think it's, it's stupid. No one cares. Because yeah, I mean, it's not stupid. But... It's not stupid, and like yes, here I guess this is my thing: is who are these people that think Russia hasn't been fucking with our elections since the Cold War and yeah. probably prior to that? Like I was, there was some uh, some person the other day. They were on Twitter, and and we were talking about the uh, the the James Risen story that I think I referenced at the, at the top of the show. You know, they were calling again. Like, you know, they're calling Putin Gate and talking about how you know they've got you know this uh, Russian essentially saying that you know the the Glenn Greenwald, Jerry Scahill are you know stooges of the Kremlin or whatever. And this, you know, when I, when I brought. Up, I was like, no, this is very McCarthyist. This person just completely like was like, no, this is you know McCarthy was conspiracy theories. This is real. What we're dealing with is a very real example of you know Russian influence on our elections. Da 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 da. And she's like, that that never happened then. And I was like, what are you talking about? That was the Cold War. Like, yes, that absolutely happened. They were there were more direct actions to influence our stuff than even today. You know, if they had cyber warfare back then, yeah. they absolutely would have fucked with our elections. I was like, this this isn't a different time. Yeah, it, in, yeah. in regards to that. But as far as as far as Greenwald and them go, you know, I love Glenn Greenwald. I like reading his editorials. Does Greenwald get extremely opinionated? Absolutely. Are there things I disagree with him on? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not going to defend any person to the death. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. No, and and no Greenwald uh, isn't going to be the first person that I decide to break that. That yeah. trend for you know I do like him and I, I value his his thoughts on things. Uh, I think him. Closing up to Tucker Carlson that one time was a mistake because Tucker Carlson's a piece of shit. But uh, whatever, that's his own thing. That's you know Greenwald can make his decisions. Re- the the Russia investigation stuff, as far as I'm concerned, did did Trump collude with Russia? Based on the evidence I've seen, probably not directly. Did yeah. Russia help Trump get elected? Yeah, probably certainly. Um, does that fix the problems that are yeah. actually plaguing us right now? No, not at all. Because I- 
we have structural yeah. problems within the way our politics works at its core. And until those problems get addressed, any country that's going to fuck with us is just going to... It, like, that's the, those it's problems are why yeah. we can get fucked with as bad as we do. Yeah. You know, and until we address those problems, yes, the countries are going to have their free, like, pot shots at us constantly. Yeah. If we had working systems of power, then it would be a lot harder for them to completely derail us with fake Facebook profiles. Like, I do think that Glenn is a bit, um, I think he's a bit overextended in his position on Russian interference, but I will say that he is taking a strong stance, as he often does, as being the one who is, you know, contrarian to the to the degree that, that which he will, like, not, I don't think he's, like, self-deluding himself, but he's just, he probably thinks, and I, in fact, I think he, I, I know that he thinks that there's probably some degree of it, but he's just elevated his criticisms of it to the great degree, and especially when he's, like, confronted with it, he's so fiercely against the idea that they, like, interfere to the degree that's being posed. Yeah, it's been abducted by the Democrats to do shitty things, but to take that and say, like, oh, Glenn Greenwald might be wrong about this, or is wrong about this, and that's such an egregious thing, he's lying to himself, he's he's being a propagandist, is like, no, what he's obviously doing is that he's firing shots at this specific group of people and yeah well so much of our discourse is based on that already yeah. so like and he's one voice yeah you know he's he's one voice that's calling out that's a, a non-conservative voice obviously the conservatives don't want to you know they don't believe that this is happening either but theirs is because as far as they're concerned trump is a god king that you know deserves to be where he's at but for greenwald he's one of the few people that's going i like where's the evidence where yeah. where is the actual evidence of this collusion because it's not you know, because again, collusion is the situation yeah. that we're talking about. Collusion, not just the Russians choosing to influence them. Collusion is the thing we need to see. And is there a lot of circumstantial evidence? Absolutely. You know, and I'm the same, like, because I'm very similar on it in where as soon as I see the evidence that goes, yeah, no, he, you know, he, Trump knew what was going to happen and now he's agreed to work with the Russians and they show like whatever the quid pro quo is of, of that deal, then fine, I'm going to change my opinion on it, 100%. I go where the evidence is. I think Greenwald's the same way. You know, yeah. if, if the evidence comes out, Greenwald is going to change his opinion. And everybody's going to fucking crucify him for it, even though what he's doing right now is just saying he's standing his ground on the evidence available, yeah. which is what rational people are supposed to do. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, the, and also just the concept that is so prevalent in the, the broadest center, the broadest sense of the left is that you can't self-criticize because you ally yourself with yeah. the enemy is so like it's such like a it's such a truthism that is, is completely unsupported by any like factual evidence and it doesn't like they don't think it needs to be supported it's just you say it and it's like oh well he said it he said the thing yeah it's the truth the a to b to c well that's that's been a problem just in i, I feel period within the realm of you know progressive liberal ideology is you know, if you don't if you don't tow that official line, yeah. you get pummeled, essentially. Yeah. The like sexual harassment kind of that goes to that. The there has been sexual harassment on in leftist circles and oh yeah, I know. But my I want to address that. Twitter followers just like not my followers personally, but the people I followed was fucking for for a hot second there. People were getting blown out of the sky pretty quickly. Yeah, people like, I uh, really liked reading. You know, Lana I, Del Rayathon. Yeah, yeah, Lana, Lana Del Rayathon. Uh, I liked reading Sam Chris a lot, yeah. and Sam Chris is gone now. Which you know, whatever. If they did that shit, then you know they deserve it. But yeah, it's it, it, it's you know, but there that does exist on the left. And that's fine. I mean, as far as shutting down people who... Now, granted, I don't think any of these people need to be burned at the stake. Granted, yeah, I don't know the extent of whatever their crimes are, but, you know, if it was just these were kind of, these were creeps and predators, 
good. Fix your shit. Fix your problems. Make rep. Make make your apologies and and your 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 beg forgiveness of the people that you've victimized, and then get back to work doing good things. Don't just fucking fall off the face of the planet. Try to do something good. Maybe you don't get the spotlight anymore. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you retreat from life altogether. I don't think that so. anyone should be subject to well, not anyone, but I don't think most people should be subject to economic violence because they do something shitty like that. But no one deserves a platform, or no one like has a exactly. right to a platform, yeah. especially an elite platform. Like that was with like the Aziz Ansari thing that everyone was freaking out about. Like regardless of the individual, uh, the the nuances of that situation. There was just something inherently like, you are defending an elite's right to be an elite. That yeah. is the premise you are defending right now, and that's stupid. Yeah. Stop. But I think that's pretty much all I wanted to hit on, so thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. Everybody get shit started. This is y'all motherfucking party. Every death is an abrupt one. Every cop is a corrupt one. If you ain't got no cash up in the trust fund. Every cat with a gap wanna bust one. Every guest wanna plus one. Every tenement's a penitent. To every tribe, man, it's innocent. Time served should be the sit and spin. Everybody wanna hit a lick. Every one of y'all is getting pinned. Every time I spin, I'm fit a rib. Every cancer's a homicide. Every boss better run and hide. Every human is some kind of black. Every visa got a pin to crack. Every verse is from the cardiac. Every search is involuntary. Every inmate won't come. Every bank note is promissory. Every broke motherfucker finna form a gang. And when we come, we taking everything. Complex. 